Let's pray as we get into the Word. Father God, we thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You, Father God, for blessing us with Your Word from heaven. Your Word is inerrant. There's no error in it. Your Word is sufficient. We need nothing more than Your Word. Your Word is infallible. It will not fail us. It cannot fail. It cannot be broken. Your word is what you have lifted up above yourself. Your word is eternal. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will remain. When we embrace your word, we are embracing you. When we submit to your word, we are submitting to you. When we reject your word is when we reject you. When we trivialize your word, we are trivializing you. But when we honor your word, we are honoring you. Your word was your chosen means by which to communicate your will to us. We thank you that we have your word. We are grateful on a daily basis because your word is bread to our spirit and our soul. And I pray today that your word will open our eyes, that will nourish our souls that your word will sustain us, your word will bring us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you that don't know, we are walking through the book of John, and this is our chosen means by which we actually study the word of God. And um, instead of topical now, we, it's not that we do not speak on topics, but we mainly like to walk through scriptures. We like to hear God speak to us in the way that He wrote it down. Chronological, which makes more sense, uh, helps us understand or grab the meaning that He had when He wrote it down. Uh, so, we actually started in the book of John last year this time. Can you believe it? We've actually been in the book of John for all year. <laughs> Dave Zadek's prophecy is coming to pass, and he said we will not be finished for the next seven years or so. But I think we're going to. I think it's good. We're in chapter 14 as we're working through the book of John. I love the book of John because the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very historical accounts of what happened to Jesus as He was born and raised and eventually went to the cross and died and buried, raised from the dead. Then, when it comes to the book of John, it goes beyond just history. It actually gives us theology, a lot of theology. Now, it's not like we don't get theology in the first books. Of course we do. But John is very much focused on the theology. He doesn't start with a birth narrative of Jesus. He starts with, in the beginning was the Word, logos, logic, where we get that word from. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 it says, and the Word became flesh. So the very Word of God that you hold in your hand... That Word became flesh and walked amongst us, and we know Him as Jesus. So, Jesus and the Word cannot be divorced from one another. You cannot separate those two. If the Word says something, it's because that is what Jesus intends for us to know. To submit ourselves to, those, to the Scriptures is to submit ourselves to Jesus. Same thing. And then the Bible says that the Word of God is spirit-breathed. The Holy Ghost breathes the Scriptures and make them come alive inside of us. 
You cannot say, I am spirit-led. That's why I'm not going to do that verse. <laughs> ah, Spirit's leading me to another wife. <laughs> now that's an extreme example. What I am saying to you is something that I've experienced a lot. You know, we used to be a, a charismatic uh, Word of Faith church, and um, what somebody said to me is, well, you know what? I, I, I believe, you know, we need to be led by the Spirit too. I'm like, well, we are being led by the Spirit when we allow the Word of God to lead us because the Word is Spirit-breathed, right? That's what it means to be led by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of His Word. I said, we don't, we don't necessarily have to uh, come up with stuff that's extra scriptural or extra biblical in order to know truth. Truth doesn't exist outside of Scripture or subject to my feelings, emotions, or my experiences, or even my opinions. Truth is not subject to me. Truth is, is objective. It comes to me from somewhere, and it comes to me from Scriptures. It's objective, not subjective. Everybody today in culture defines truth to be subjective. That's how they came to this idea that you have a truth and I have a truth. And that's why they ask, what's your truth? Because this is my truth. That's a subjective. That's discovering truth subjectively, a subjective truth. But objectively speaking, the truth comes to us from Scripture. We don't need anything outside of it to know God, to know truth. And somebody said to me, well, you know what? I, I, I see you believe that um, Scriptures are sufficient. I'm like, yeah, Scriptures are sufficient. That's what God gave us in order to know Him and His will. He says, yeah, but you know what? I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, the guy says, but I also believe in the sufficiency of the Spirit. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> so in other words, what he's telling me is that the Bible is sufficient but insufficient if you don't always also see the subjective leading of the Holy Ghost outside of Scriptures. Are you following what I'm saying? Okay. I didn't mean to go there, but I just did. You cannot divorce Jesus from the Word of God. You cannot separate Scripture from Spirit and say, I'm Spirit-led, not Scripture-led. To be scripture-led is to be spirit-led. Amen? To say that scripture might be sufficient, but you also believe in the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit, that is, that is a complete contradiction. Now, in John chapter 14, <clears throat> well, let me start in John chapter 12. Mary anoints Jesus' feet with oil, and then she wipes his feet with, his, with her hair, something that, the, that wasn't really commonplace for them to take their hair down and then still to wipe his feet with her hair. In the next chapter, chapter 13, we see while Jesus is facing death and separation from God, he knew his time was there for him to die at the, at the cruel hands of his enemies. Um, he ministers to his disciples. At a time when you would imagine him needing support, he gives support. He ministers to his disciples. He washes their feet, and we talked about that last week. And then the next chapter, the one we're talking about today in chapter 14, he's now even closer to death. And the agony of the cross is now closer to him than before. And again, we see Jesus not soliciting support, soliciting ministry. He ministers 
by comforting his disciples. It's an amazing thing. The little lesson that I got from there that's really a big lesson is when you need ministry, it's time for you to minister. Because he who waters gets watered. He who gives is given to. If you need comfort, go comfort somebody, will you? Because what we, happen to, what we become in our modern day and age is we become like the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea doesn't give anything. It just receives. That's why it's dead. And in the same way, you and I, when we, are, when we need encouragement, go and encourage. If we need encouragement from God, encourage somebody by the Word of God, and you'll be encouraged. Tell you what, I've never been more encouraged than after I have taught the Word of God. I've never loved somebody more than, than when I've already prayed for them. When I pray for them, I, I have greater uh, love and compassion toward them. It's when I minister is when I'm being ministered to at the same time. And so here Jesus, when you think that he's at the time when he really needs all the support he can get, he really needs all the prayer he can get and the ministry he can get, even though he did ask him to pray, yet at this point, before he does that, he actually ministers to them and he ministers to them comfort. Now, we have a very interesting way of comforting people today, don't we? Whenever somebody experiences loss close to you or they experience comf uh, pain or, <clears throat> or sickness, we have a very interesting way of comforting them. To comfort somebody, we usually rely on an emotional or a psychological appeal. We say things that we think would make them feel better. We just want them to feel better about their station in life. We say things like, well, you know, Brother, time, time heals all things. Time heals. Or we say, I, I know how you feel. I, I have sympathy for you. I've been there. I know how you feel. You say things, I know that feeling of loss. I know that loneliness that you're experiencing. Well, I, I, I know that pain. I, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. You're not alone. Or we say something like, everything will be okay. Trust me. <laughs> everything will be okay. <clears throat> I'm not saying all of that means nothing. But what I'm saying is while we comfort a person by attempting to help a person feel different about their situation, Jesus comforts His disciples by calling them to faith in Him and by making promises to them. That's how He comforts. This is key. This is important. We'll see that throughout, the book of, throughout uh, John 14. He comforts by calling them to have more faith in Him, to have faith in Him, and then He makes promises to them that they can hold on to and be comforted by these biblical promises. And this, to me, was an encouragement that when I need to comfort somebody, it should be with biblical promises. Not by, you know, everything will, everything will turn around, trust me, everything will turn around. You know, give them biblical promises they can trust. <clears throat> so as he comforts his disciples, so he comforts you and me today. Because his word that was spoken 2,000 years ago is still alive and well today for his disciples, which you are part of. So here are the seven ways Jesus comforts us in John chapter 14. The first way is he comforts us by commanding us to address our fears and we address our fears, how? By having faith in Him. Let's look at that verse. John 14, verse 1, it says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Stop it. Cut it out. 
Don't let your heart be troubled. Yeah, but did you see what's happening in the Ukraine? Don't let your heart be troubled. Yeah, but have you put in gas lately? <laughs> Don't let your heart be troubled. Yeah, but you know what? I'm getting older. Don't let your heart be troubled. What if, what if sickness sets in? Don't let your heart be troubled. And he was really speaking about eternity there. He wasn't speaking about the gas pump, really. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. How? Believe in God. Believe also in me. I never actually saw it that way. But he didn't say, believe in God, believe also in me, for no reason. He didn't connect it for no reason to his opening command, which is, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in me. Believe in God. Don't let your heart be troubled. Stop your heart from being anxious. How? Believe in me. Believe in God. So here we see Jesus commands us to stop our hearts from being troubled, from being anxious by having faith in Him. Number two, He comforts us by promising us an eternal future with Him. He comforts us by promising us an eternal future with Him. In verse 2 it says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you, because I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm coming again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you also will be. It's like a wedding. It's like a marriage. I'm coming for you. I'm coming to get you. Prepare yourself. Here Jesus comforts His disciples by promising them a future they could long for. A future they will all be where they will all be together as one household in His Father's mansion. How exciting is that? Verse 4 says, And you know the way where I'm going. You know where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father into his mansions I just spoke about except through me. Here Jesus comforts us by putting the responsibility of getting to his Father's mansions, that responsibility of getting us into his mansions after death on himself, not on us. That's a comfort, folks. Thank you, Lord. The way I will enter my father, the mansions that He has prepared for me, my Father's house, I don't have to think about this. It's not my responsibility, it's His. We don't have to look at fear with dread the way the world does. Number three, Jesus comforts us by confirming our oneness with Him and His oneness with the Father. He says, verse 7, if you had known, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know Him and have seen Him. See, if we know Christ, we know the Father. We do not need to be anxious. Our relationship we have with Jesus is the same relationship we have with the Father. Jesus is basically saying, you're good with me, therefore you're good with the Father. 
because I and the Father, we are one. We are safe in Christ because Jesus is the fullest revelation of the Father that the world has ever seen. Jesus is the revelation, the express image of the Father, the greatest, the clearest revelation that the world has ever seen. There's nothing clearer regarding God the Father than Jesus Christ Himself. And us being in Him, right with Him, we are in, in Father God and right with Father God. Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to Him, Have I been with you for so long a time? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip. No one has seen me. No one, oh, excuse me, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father? I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father, as He remains in me, does His works. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. Here Jesus, of course, is not saying that we will do greater works in power, but that we will do greater works in extent. We will go to the ends of the earth. Verse 13, and whatever you ask in my name, this I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I need to clarify this a little bit because of where we come from as a church. Here Jesus is not encouraging His disciples to attach the phrase, in Jesus' name, after every prayer. Are you, are you with me? It's like, well, let me get my to-do list <clears throat> or my, let me get my, my, my wish list. Thank you. <laughs> let me get my wish list. Let's start with the first one. All right, red Ferrari. In Jesus' name. All right. Uh, <laughs> you always go to wife after that, right? But like, because I've been a youth pastor my whole life, I always talk to young guys that need. And this is the wife I'm looking for. In Jesus' name. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is not what we were told to do there. Or that's not the permission we got. We didn't get permission to do that here. No, Jesus is saying, if you ask anything in my name. So let me frame, frame that in a different way. If you represent me in prayers, in my name, if you represent me in your prayer life, you will get what you ask for. If you ask anything on my behalf, in my name, on my behalf, I'll do it for you. If you ask anything that, it, that my name would call for or that my name would stand for, if you pray for that, you will get it. When you ask something on Jesus' behalf, you are asking for things in line with Jesus' purposes. And I mean, salvation is Jesus' purpose. He came. That man will be saved from sin. That's why... My wife and I pray that by the grace of God, you will be able to turn from your sin. In Jesus' name. Pray that salvation will come to my family and your family. In Jesus' name. That was His purpose, to come and save us. That 
When I need forgiveness, I will ask in Jesus' name for forgiveness. Strength to continue as a disciple. I mean, he says very clearly, those who endure to the end shall be saved. But he also says that he preserves you. He keeps you. You can't unborn yourself. You can't uncreate yourself. He keeps you. But you have to persevere. But you cannot persevere if He doesn't preserve. So again, that paradox in Christianity, God is one, yes, but He is three. Jesus is man, yes, but He is God. 100% man, 100% God. God is grace, yes, He is law. God is both, all the way at the, throughout. He, he preserves you and you persevere, and that's why. Yes, He is sovereign, and yes, you are responsible. Yes to both. Always yes to both. In God's economy, that works out perfectly. <laughs> but you cannot be, you cannot persevere if He doesn't preserve you. So in order for perseverance, this is something we can ask in Jesus' name. Strength to continue as a disciple. Pray for that. God's wisdom in ministering to your family, to your loved ones. I have to always pray, how can, I, how can I minister more the way you want me to minister, Jesus? Please give me that wisdom in Jesus' name. So when we ask for things according to Jesus' purpose, we should also ask for them on Christ's merit, not ours. I ask for all those things, not on my own merit, but on Christ's merit. I ask in Jesus' name. So I have to, you see, the Bible says that you ask, but you do not have because you ask amiss. Is this true? Does the Bible say that? Yes, because what we do is we don't ask according to His purposes. We ask according to ours. But the second part, asking on His merit, not ours, we get that part right. We get right by saying, you know, I ask this, I have this prayer request, and I'm asking you to do this in Jesus' name, not on my merit, on Jesus' merit. We've been taught that, but what we haven't been taught is that we should ask not according to our purposes, but He's instead. In Jesus' name. Amen? So we see that He comforts us by confirming our oneness with Him and His oneness with the Father. We, are, we believe in Him, therefore we believe in God. We are right with, we're in Christ. That's why we are in God, reconciled to Him. Number four, He comforts us by identifying us as His own. I love this. He identifies us as His own. Jesus wants to make sure you know that you belong to Him. Because when you know that you belong to Him, and you live from that knowledge, your whole life changes. When you realize whose you are, your whole life changes. He comforts us by helping us identify that we are His own. He says in verse 15, If you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commands. <clears throat> you see, Jesus is saying that a distinction can be made between believers and unbelievers. There's a distinction made between believers and unbelievers here. How? By the way they respond to His commands. That's how you know somebody is a believer or unbeliever, 
You know it not because of what they know and how they speak, but how they obey. That's how you know. Many people know all the right words to say. But they, don't, they are not Christ because they, they do not obey His commands. He said it. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Now that is not an invitation to prove that you love Him. That is a distinction made to see who actually already loves Him or not. Does that make sense to you? It's a distinction made. The proof of our love is not by singing a song to Him or declaring our eternal love for Him, but by our obedience to Him. That's, that's what He said. That's, how the, that's the only proof I have that I love Jesus. The only proof, He says. Why? Because our love for Christ will compel us to submit to our King. My love for Jesus will compel me to submit to Him as King. Not perfectly, but at least that's my desire, to submit to Him as King. Again, this, station, this statement is not an invitation given. It is a distinction made. We are not invited to love Him by obeying Him. That would be works-based love. However, we are told that we know that we love Him if we are compelled to obey Him. And this is how we know we belong to Christ, when obeying Him is our heart's desire. If your heart's desire is to obey Him, you love Him. And Jesus emphasizes this truth elsewhere too in the same chapter. In verse 21, <clears throat> He says, The one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. It couldn't be clearer. The one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Remember how I told you about it earlier on in, in the service? That you cannot separate the Word from Christ Himself. To submit to the Word is to submit to Christ. To love the Word is to love Christ. To desire the Word is to desire Christ. Same. And here Jesus is saying that. If anyone loves me, uh, excuse me, the, the one who has my commands keep, and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will reveal myself to him. Then in verse 23 and 24, he says the same thing. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will follow my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. The one who does not love me does not follow my words. Wow. The one who does not love me does not follow my words. And the, one, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So the conclusion here is that Jesus, when He comforts, He does not appeal to a person's emotions, but to a person's knowledge. He's trying to give you knowledge about yourself. And He's trying to show you, you see that? You see that desire that you have for Scripture? Do you see that eagerness that you have to do the Scriptures and to submit yourself to them? You see that? That's a sign right there. You love me. Ask yourself, is it a big deal for me to know the Bible? Is it a big deal for you to know Scriptures? Okay, number two, ask yourself, is it a big deal to you when you realize you are not obeying Scriptures? Does it bother you? Okay. If your answer is in the affirmative to those, then you love Jesus and the, and the Father loves you. 
And Jesus is comforting them with this knowledge. He's not appealing to their emotion. He's appealing to their knowledge. And this is how He comforts them. Number five, Jesus comforts us by promising us the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 16, I'll ask the Father and He will give you another helper so that He may be with you forever. The helper is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. What a comfort. After a little while, the world no longer is going to see me. But you are going to see me because I live with you. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am my Father. I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. The one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will reveal myself to him. Here Jesus teaches that love implies revelation. Those who do my will, that is a sign that they love me, and their love for me causes me to reveal myself to them. Jesus teaches that love implies revelation. Love implies revelation. While indifference blinds you to knowledge. Indifference blinds you to knowledge. It is no wonder that those who have no love for Scriptures are the very ones who cannot find Scriptures to make any sense. <laughs> Man, nothing makes sense. Or what they can do is they can find all the Scriptures that they can put their little spin on to make it seem like it's archaic, outdated, irrelevant, and contradictory. They will find ways to make Scriptures be that because they know how to twist them, but it's because they don't love God. If I love my wife, I'm not trying to misunderstand her. Are you following me? I love my wife. I'm trying to understand with all my might. I love my son. I'm, I'm literally trying to understand him. <laughs> like little Amelia Grace. You love her. That's why you're trying to see what she's saying to you, right? You love God. He will reveal himself to you because you have a desire to understand him and to know him. I have this Facebook friend that, <clears throat> that literally despises Christianity. He's not a real-life friend. He's a Facebook friend. <laughs> and uh, I'm always amazed. I'm actually intrigued by reading his post, how he's able to, to put a spin on Scriptures <clears throat> to make it mean absolutely not what Jesus meant for it to say. The latest one <laughs> he posted, excuse me, he was able to twist enough Scriptures to prove that Jesus was some mystic guru from the Middle East. <laughs> How do you get there? It's because you don't love God. Verse 22, Jesus, I mean Judas, <laughs> Judas, not Iscariot, said to Jesus, Lord, what has happened? Uh, uh, Lord, what has happened that you are going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will follow my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. The one who does not love me does not follow my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while remaining with you. With the help of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of all that I have said to you. 
My understanding of this is in three different categories. First, the Holy Spirit will ensure that the apostles become clear on all that Jesus taught them. He taught them all these different things. And when Jesus died, was buried and raised and, and rose from the dead, everything Jesus taught them in the past became clear to them then. The Holy Spirit will be their teacher of what He said to them. Secondly, we also see that the Holy Spirit will cause the apostles to remember all that Jesus taught them. When they see these things and they see Him go up into heaven, all the things that He said to them, they will remember and they will be able to write it down so that they could complete the New Testament. But thirdly, in the third category, what it says right here, when it says the Helper will bring to you, will teach you all things and remind you of all that I have said to you, what that means to you and I is that the Holy Spirit will ensure you and I remember all of His commands by cultivating our consciences according to His Word. You know, the conscience is not something that the devil gave you. It's something God gave you. A conscience is not a light that produces light. A conscience is like a, a sun. What do you call that in the roof where you can see through your roof? Skylight, thank you. It's a skylight. The conscience is a skylight. It accuses you and excuses you based on the highest truth that's been introduced to you, right? The highest truth you've been taught holds you accountable to that truth. You can escape me, you can escape the police, you can escape everybody, but you can't escape your conscience. Your conscience is that skylight God gave you through which God's highest truth that's been revealed to you accuses you or excuses you in the way you live. If there's one thing I wish for my children is not that they would be happy, is that they would have a scripturally built, constructed, and cultivated conscience. Because when I'm not there, their conscience is there, accusing them or excusing them. Amen? And so when it says that He gave us the Holy Ghost to be a helper and to teach us all things and remind us of all the things that He has said to us, that's what happens to you. When you walking around and you do something or make a decision you shouldn't or say something you shouldn't, you go like, oh, okay, I'm sorry, Lord. Happens to me a lot, trying to make a joke. You know how it is when you're trying to make a joke, it's not funny, not funny, not funny, and you keep on pushing that envelope until you hit, you strike oil. <laughs> you know? Like, all right, I found something funny. But in your, in your search for striking oil, and you, when it comes to humor, you oftentimes step over the line, and I go like, oh, I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> your conscience strikes you. But so, God gave us a conscience. And the Holy Spirit works with us by that which God has given us. Number six, Jesus comforts us by promising us peace. He promises us peace. Verse 27, He then says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not, according, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled nor fearful. You heard that I said to you, I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. Remember? The Holy Spirit will bring to their remembrance what He said when they see things happening. So the conclusion here is to have peace means to have stability of mind and security of heart regarding eternal salvation. You are in me. I'm in the Father. We're one. I'm coming to take you. 
and I will take the responsibility of bringing you to the mansions prepared for you in my Father's house, and we will be a household together. And this is the comfort that we have, stability of mind regarding salvation and, and, and security of heart regarding eternal salvation. Number seven, the last way Jesus comforted them here is that he promised them that death has no right to hold him. Death has no right to hold him. There's nothing death has on him. He has no sin. So Jesus comforts by promising that death has no right to hold him and therefore cannot hold us. That's why death cannot hold you. If you're in Christ, verse 30, he says, I, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in regard to me. That statement, in regard to me, <clears throat> simply means Satan has no claim on me, nothing. He has no dirt on me. The ruler of the world, Satan, has nothing or could not charge Jesus with any sin. And that is why Satan could not hold him in death. Therefore, he cannot hold you in death because you're in Christ. Verse 31. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let's go from here. Comforted. Let's go. <laughs> Let's take action. Not comfort so that you don't have to take action. No comfort, so that you can take action. Are you with me? We rise up and we go from here because we are comforted. My challenge for you this morning is to establish and cement your comfort in this crazy world. You are to be comforted. I can't stress it enough. He starts off by commanding you, do not let your heart be troubled. Do not. My challenge for you, therefore, is to establish and cement comfort in this, 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 this uncomfortable world by taking these seven comforts given by Jesus, practice them daily until they become commonplace with you in your heart, mind, and in the counsel that you give others that need comfort. So our takeaway is, number one, He comforts us by commanding us to address our fears. How? By having faith in Him. That's how you still your heart. That's how you still your mind. Number two, He comforts us by promising us an eternal future with Him. Something to long for, to look forward to. Number three, He comforts us by affirming our oneness with Him and His oneness with the Father. Therefore, our oneness, our reconciliation with the Father. You are right with God. You believe in me. Number four, He comforts us by identifying us as His own. How? By allowing us to test our love for Him by measuring our desire to know and obey Scripture. Your relationship to Scripture says everything about your relationship to Jesus. And you, you know my dislike for, for popular Christian music. 
let me say it differently, my dislike for popular Christian artists, <laughs> in the sense of like, you know, if you, have a, if you have a guitar, a crazy hairdo, and a tattoo, yeah, you have a platform in Christianity. You don't have to, you don't actually have to know the Lord, you know, stand up for the Lord, like Lauren Daigle or all of these. You don't have to. You just have to sing nicely. And sing love songs to Jesus. That's not how we know that we are His. We know that we love Him by obeying His commands. All these, all these Christian artists, if you want to know if they love Jesus, just put them on the couch with Oprah Winfrey and ask them the homosexual question. That's all. You'll know if they love Christ or not. Simple. If they're backpedaling, hum and hawing, and they're duck and diving, of course they don't. Of course they don't. People say, oh, that's so confrontive. Show me one time Jesus showed up where he didn't divide the room. <laughs> show me one time <laughs> he doesn't show up where there isn't contention. <laughs> and it escalates all the way to the cross. Can't say you love him, but you're duck and diving his word. Impossible. Number five, He comforts us by promising us the Holy Spirit that, it'll work, that He will work in us through our conscience, accusing and excusing us according to Christ's will, the will we've been exposed to. Number six, He comforts us by promising us peace, the stability of heart and the stability of mind regarding our eternal future since we have faith in Christ. Seven, He comforts us by promising us death has no hold on Him. Death, death has nothing on Him, therefore... Death has nothing on you if you are in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your...